We are uh, entering, or have entered, I guess I should say, a rough section of Luke. Uh, if you remember my understanding, and the understanding I think of most of the uh, commentators and scholars, is that this section of Luke is, is, uh, is marked by his journey to Jerusalem. Uh, he is, uh, as predicted, and will reiterate that he's going there with a purpose in mind. Uh, he's going there to be betrayed, uh, to be tortured, uh, to be killed, and to be raised. And uh, when I was last with you, Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray. Uh, he had just enjoyed the hospitality uh, of Mary and Martha and noted uh, with approval that uh, Mary had chosen the one necessary thing, the better portion, uh, which would not be taken from her. Uh, and then uh, Tim and Sam picked up uh, the rough road that extended from that. Uh, there is opposition now from the crowd. Uh, the crowd has been largely favorable and amazed and pleased, uh, but now they, uh, some are slandering him as uh, doing his works by the devil. Uh, some are demanding that, uh, that he perform signs uh, for their pleasure. And, uh, and now as we look in this passage this morning, the stakes are being raised with the religious authorities. Uh, now, I think it's always necessary to keep these things in mind so that you don't have a distorted view of Jesus. Uh, you can develop a distorted view that is fed more by pop culture, uh, more by wishful thinking, more by nostalgia than what the Bible actually teaches. <clears throat> you don't often think of Jesus picking a fight, but here he uh, pointedly affronts a host and he calls him and his friends fools. You might quickly remember that Jesus spoke against calling anyone a fool, uh, but here it seems that at times uh, that's the appropriate word. Uh, as we think about Jesus heading to Jerusalem, we know that his determination to go to the cross uh, is full of theological significance. Of course, it is in fulfillment of the agreement that he has with the Father to do the Father's will, uh, to die for the sins of his people. Uh, to absorb the, the wrath of God, the punishment of God on their behalf. Uh, but there were also social reasons uh, that are going to put Jesus on the cross. People are getting angry with him. People are upset with him. People are opposed to him. Uh, you see again and again from this point on uh, that the conflict is not mainly between Jesus and the secular culture, uh, but the conflict is between Jesus and the religious authorities. And so, uh, as a minister, uh, this sometimes causes me to tremble. And uh, to the other ministers, I imagine they feel the same way. Uh, to the elders, the same thing applies, and to the deacons as well. Uh, the context here is large. Uh, I've mentioned in the past that meals are a big deal in ancient Near Eastern culture. Uh, Jesus is both being honored uh, at this meal, but he's also being grilled. Uh, there are rules that he disregards. Uh, there were customs that had attained uh, religious status, uh, and those customs are most on display uh, at meals. Uh, issues of religious purity uh, are at stake, and these are things about which Jesus has something to say. Pharisees and lawyers are at this table, and that ought to cause your ears to 
perk up. We noted in a Sunday school class uh, back in the spring uh, the particular foibles of the Pharisees. In fact, I think there are still copies of the book in the bookstore in chapter and verse uh, called Evangelical Pharisees by Michael Reeves. And Reeves does a very elegant job of parsing out the, ev- of the, uh, the Pharisees' flaws according to uh, Trinitarian concerns. Uh, so he says that the Pharisees uh, pointedly manipulated God's revelation to their own good so that they failed to understand it. Uh, they pointedly repudiated the Son's redemption, thinking that they did not need the Son to redeem them, but rather would be saved by their own good deeds, their own works. And they neglected or repudiated the Spirit's capacity to regenerate them. They didn't think they needed to be born again. Uh, They thought they were the top of the heap already. What Reeves did in that book was he pointed out the evangelical propensity to do the same. Uh, So when we see Pharisees, and we'll get mentioned next week as well, and and maybe more than a few times as we make our way uh, through the Gospel of Luke, um, we ought to be paying attention to the way that we, if I can call us this, conservative Christians, we who take the Bible seriously, we who understand ourselves to be separated from the world, bear the greatest likeness uh, to the Pharisees who are Jesus' primary opponents uh, in his march to Jerusalem. And the key feature of the Pharisees and the lawyers, I haven't even gotten to read the passage yet, don't worry, I'm getting there. But the key feature of the Pharisees and the lawyers was their spiritual blindness. They did not see or know that they had drifted so far from the heart of God. It was surprising to them. In fact, they denied it. They said, you must be talking about someone else. And so Jesus says a couple of times, if you have ears, pay attention. I would say the same thing to all of us here this morning. If you have ears to hear, pay very close attention Uh, Here, Jesus takes them on at the point of their expertise, and he quickly and directly exposes them. Uh, He exposes their neglect of the poor and their chronic opposition to God's messengers, uh, the prophets. Now, I do want to say, you know, by way of introduction still, that this whole notion of rich and poor is a dominant theme uh, in the Gospel of Luke. I've mentioned this in the past. I won't belabor it now. Uh, But when Jesus gave his inaugural sermon, uh, he read from the prophet Isaiah, said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. Uh, That's the way it's described. He said earlier in chapter 6, blessed are you who are poor, woe to you who are rich. Now, this is not simply economic categories, but it really has to do with who's rich not only economically but socially. Who's in charge? You know, who has, has obtained the good life? He says, you are the ones who need most to be careful. And he might even pronounce a woe upon you. So, that being said, uh, let me read up to the end of the chapter, starting with verse 37 in Luke chapter 11. Uh, this is God's Word. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, 
But inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves that people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers, also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you. For you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers. For they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute. So that the blood of all the prophets, shed from the foundation of the world, may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him and to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something that he might say. Have mercy. Uh, So let's uh, first pay attention to the way uh, that Jesus uh, picks this fight. Uh, Hand washing was uh, not a matter of physical cleanliness. It wasn't a matter of washing hands after you've come in from working in order to have clean hands for your meal, but it was ritual purity. Uh, It was not taught in Scripture, although it kind of resonates Uh, with the purity codes that were in Scripture. Uh, But again, Jesus doesn't ever thwart the law of God, um, but he is perfectly willing to um, treat very casually the traditions of men. Uh, He deliberately ignores social convention, uh, and so, in in some way, kind of snubs his host. Uh, The Pharisee is astonished, uh, but he doesn't mention anything, uh, and then Jesus uh, takes it to them. Uh, He uses the situation of ritual purity to lament their hypocrisy. Now, we'll talk about this a little bit more next week, but he will tell his disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Uh, He says that they are full of greed and wickedness and that they are fools. Now, you know, I'd love to sit on this for a long time, but I won't, but it's, it's serious. It is grievous that he levels these charges against the Pharisees. Greed, in fact, is a little bit of a mild translation. This is not the ordinary Greek word for greed. It's a more strenuous word that carries a connotation of violence. It refers to a desire to plunder, uh, to rapacity. Uh, This word is translated uh, in chapter 18 as extortion. Uh, So it's something even more than simple greed. Uh, wickedness is moral corruption. It is translated later on in this chapter as evil. 
Uh, so this is what he's saying to the Pharisees. You guys look good. But inside, I know you, and you're evil. Inside, you are uh, violently greedy. You are rapacious. And then he calls them fools. And what he's doing, very simply, in this is he's redefining purity. He's saying that purity has nothing to do with the external show. It has nothing to do with it. The external needs to flow from the internal. If the external exists to serve itself, it's worthless and is actually an indication of the corruption that is inside. Purity is a matter of inward disposition of the heart that reflects God's heart. That's what real purity is. That's what the purity codes were intended uh, to communicate. And, And this cannot be understated for all of us. I want to say that again. It can't be understated. If there's anything that you write down and anything that you take away, uh, ask yourself the question about the disposition of your heart. Take an internal look at who you actually are, at the things that course through your brain. You know, what was going on in your brain after uh, I read the section from Matthew 5 and before we did the public confession? Now, I would imagine that for a lot of us, there was a blank slate. We weren't thinking about much. I have the capacity not only to have a blank slate, but to start to daydream about what I'm going to be doing this afternoon during a time when I ought to be coming before the Lord and confessing sin, during a time when I ought to be reflecting on what Jesus is saying about the insidious aspects of sin, the way they occupy the heart in a way that is not demonstrable, Uh, to the outside world. A self-reflective life is absolutely necessary for the Christian. I found this amusing quote, and it was a little bit too salty for the sermon, uh, so I I, I won't use it, but if you ask me for it later, ask me to email it to you, I'll send it to you. But a Christian writer who is actually a humorist was saying that, you know, because I'm a Christian, I have to pay attention to the disposition of my heart because I'm a whole lot worse than I ever imagined myself to be. And being in this condition, I have to pay attention. So you have to pay attention to your heart. You have to ask yourself the question, you know, what are the things I'm afraid of? What are the things that I'm anxious about? What are the lusts that I choose to hang on to? Where does my imagination go when I think about my future? And when I think about acquisitions and when I think about how to dispose of my wealth? And this is not psychologizing. This is not appealing to the therapeutic. This is simply a biblical sensibility, you know, that David expressed very powerfully at the end of Psalm 139. You remember the last two verses? He says, search my heart, O God, try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It's not the only time that David says it. Many times through the Psalms, he asks the Lord to search his heart. See if there's anything in me, try me. Uh, What Jesus is saying to the Pharisees is you guys rarely, if ever, do that. In fact, it seems that you scrupulously avoid uh, doing any such thing, paying attention only to what's on the outside, to what is visible. Their hypocrisy is tied to their neglect of the poor. And I I just want to point out that it's interesting that Jesus mentions the giving of alms 
as something that ought to be done, something that was being done. And he also mentions in the next passage, which we'll get to in a minute, uh, the practice of tithing, but the way that their tithing uh, had the function in their own lives of neglecting justice and the love of God. Um, One of the pointed examples of the the problem of the Pharisees uh, was the way that they had this external holiness that that really only existed in order to impress others. It only existed in order to garner praise from one another. Jesus challenged them in John chapter 5, and he said, how can you have the love of God in you when you seek praise from one another and not the praise that comes from God? So they had an external righteousness that only served the function of being patted on the back of people coming up to them and saying, oh, you're such a wonderful and godly person. Uh, While they neglected uh, deeper matters, and they, in fact, disregarded those who were poor. And it's interesting, there are other places, and maybe we'll get to them later in the Gospel of Luke, where the, the Pharisees are described as actually being pretty aggressively greedy and interested in acquiring wealth. It's kind of, you know, that they were overtly uh, interested in building up uh, their own nest, and they had a great fixation uh, on, on wealth. Um, almsgiving here is not the same as charity, uh, but it expresses solidarity with the poor, embracing those in need as though they were members of one's own kin. That's what almsgiving did. You know, the apostle says in, in, at the end of Galatians, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That's what almsgiving was. It's bearing one another's burdens. It's not that I give to you because you're poor, uh, but rather it's because you are my brother, you are my sister, I share your burden. And, and it's, it's just curious the way that he describes it here. Uh, he says... Uh, but give as alms those things that are within. He's making this distinction between what's inside and what's outside. You know, what's outside the cup, they have made clean. Kind of a ridiculous notion if you think about dishwashing. Uh, but they're leaving the inside as corrupt. And what he's saying, transform the inside. You know, repent. Transform the inside. Give that as your alms and everything will be clean for you. It's, a, it's really a repeated message in Luke that what you do with your money shows where your heart is. That keeps coming out. Uh, but the instruction in verse 41 really is an invitation. And, and I've said this before, but everything that Jesus says always carries the connotation of invitation. So even when it looks to our eyes as though he's being harsh, you need to understand that Jesus never did anything in his life that wasn't loving that wasn't tender-hearted, that wasn't full of grace. So even as he's exposing these things, he's inviting them to repent. He's saying, come, take advantage of the mercy of God. Take advantage of what's on offer to you. The kingdom of God is here, therefore repent. Wasn't that the fundamental message at the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke? He goes out and preaches, the kingdom of God has come near, therefore repent. The kingdom of God coming means that God is extending his mercy in Jesus as the perfect sacrifice for sin. And that by attaching yourself to him, 
by foregoing, forsaking, any other means by which you might imagine that you can save yourself or put yourself in God's good stead or appear to be good, if you will forsake all of that, kick it off, and attach yourself only to Christ, then the mercy of God will be granted to you and a party will break out in heaven. Now that, that is extended to everyone who's not a Christian. It's also extended to every Christian who might be struggling with a little hypocrisy. And it only makes sense, doesn't it, that some of us are struggling with a little hypocrisy? It can't be the case that all of the hundreds of people in the room, none would be struggling with hypocrisy. I mean, all of us have got places where this self-reflection will bear fruit. There's always an invitation from Jesus. Then he goes on and specifies these woes. There's three to the Pharisees. There's three to the lawyers. Um, when Jesus pronounces his woes, it's interesting. You need to think about the, what he's actually doing here. He's not condemning them. He's not sitting in judgment on them. He's not bringing the, the judgment and the condemnation against them. But what he's saying is the condemnation is coming, And I lament that you're going to undergo it unless you change. So in some ways, the pronouncement of woe is Jesus groaning over their destiny if they won't repent. So woe number one, again, as I mentioned a minute ago, is this concern for external noticeable acts of piety, tithing especially. That's one of the things that happened was that tithing was a public display And so they would tithe, and they'd be scrupulous in their tithing. And and Jesus doesn't say that there's any problem with that. Uh, These you ought to have done, or he said, uh, 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 without neglecting the others. You know, the tithing is a good thing, but you're only doing it to be seen by others. And there's no inward impulse toward justice and the love of God. Again, I I think we live in a milieu where uh, justice has uh, been given a bad name. Uh, we lived in a, in a milieu where uh, social justice has reared its head in ways that are a little bit unsavory. And we have problems with some of those things, and there are big discussions to be had about uh, what comprises justice, whether equality of opportunity or equality of outcome or appropriate goals, and I'll leave that to the political theorists. Uh, but I will say, as a pastor, that justice is a big deal in the Bible that fair play is a big deal, that understanding that every good gift that you have is a gift from God and given to you as a test to see whether you will acknowledge that and to see whether you are inclined to join league with uh, those who have less than you is a big part of the Bible. It resonates all the way through the Gospel of Luke. And the problem with the Pharisees is that they are neglecting that. They're neglecting not only justice, but they're also neglecting the love of God. And those two things coalesce. Those two things go together. You can't neglect justice and understand anything about the love of God. But to know about the love of God is to a heart that is moved to justice. And Jesus points out the abject hypocrisy of their tithing uh, because of the absence of concern uh, for the poor. Uh, Woe number two. Uh, was that they love, respect, and acclamation. 
this is something that, uh, that I think is, is directed especially uh, to us pastors, uh, to us elders in the church. Uh, it is a horrifying thing to think that we begin to enjoy uh, respect and acclamation. It is even more horrifying to think that such is due us and to assert uh, the propriety of such and to, uh, you know, hammer down on our authority. Um, I think we just need to be so painfully careful about this. Um, it is appropriate for the congregation to respect its leaders. It is horrifying when the leaders uh, begin to count on that and use it to their own advantage. Uh, Woe number three, because of their neglect and their pride, they have, without knowing it, become unclean in a far more profound way. Jesus says, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. To come in contact with the dead uh, was to become unclean. You know, so if you somehow came upon a dead person and you picked him up, put him on a stretcher and carried him away, you would be unclean, ritually unclean, and you'd have to undergo certain sacrifices and certain offerings in the temple and a certain amount of time before you could be clean again. Uh, if, and, and so you avoided a graveyard uh, for that reason as well. The trouble was the unmarked graves. In fact, the case is that if you walked over an unmarked grave, you became unclean. But you became unclean, and you didn't even know that you'd become unclean. And what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees is because of your neglect of justice and the love of God, because of your pride in wanting people to think well of you and hold you up as paragons, you've become so unclean that people are actually becoming unclean by getting near you. The lawyer would have been wise to keep his mouth shut. But he speaks up. This is what's called in the vernacular leading with the chin. Uh, he sticks his chin out there and, uh, and Jesus takes a shot. He pronounces three woes to the lawyers. Woe number one, uh, once again a distinction between those who are in the catbird seat and those who suffer correspondingly. This, again, uh, is a rich-poor situation. You load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Laws upon laws, and then fences around each of those laws, and fences around the fences. Uh, They sought to control uh, the lives of people. It was onerous. It was was, uh, uh, difficult for them to manage. Uh, Again, wealth uh, played a part in it because wealth was extracted, uh, and yet there was no offer to help uh, those who lacked the resources to do what they were being called to do. Again, scrupulous in their attention to the details of the law, uh, but much more connected to rabbinic teachings than to the Scriptures. The second woe, uh, curiously, is their complicity with those who murdered the prophets, Uh, as demonstrated in their disregard of Jesus and the apostles. Uh, This is really uh, something that makes you take a step back uh, when he says that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world uh, will be charged against this generation. And then everyone murdered in the Old Testament from Abel, the first murder victim, to Zechariah and in the Hebrew 
text, uh, he is the last assassinated prophet, is going to fall on them. Um, They are complicit in this murder of the prophets, although they distance themselves from it by trying to build monuments that will distract people, uh, thinking, you know, that we wouldn't do that. We wouldn't do anything like that. Look at how good we are. We build the monuments. Uh, I read uh, a commentator one time that said it's, it's amazing the way uh, our uh, public TV is full of reflections on World War II. And the reason for that is we look so good. Now, let's hold up the Nazis to be the bad guys. And who were the good guys that rescued the world from the Nazis but us? Well, this is kind of what the, what the lawyers are doing here, what Jesus is criticizing them for. You know, you distance yourself, but in fact, their rejection of Jesus, their hostility towards him and towards his apostles puts them right in the same league uh, with those who murdered the prophets. Uh, the last woe is they not only don't listen, but they also keep others from listening and spurn the bearers of God's word. You've taken away the key to knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. Uh, The point is they won't listen when God sends someone to them. They disregard God's word, and then they try to hinder other people from hearing uh, God's word. Again, I mean, it's something for self-reflection. It's something to consider. Uh, To the preachers, there are a few of us in the room. Uh, we need to take heed uh, that we proclaim God's word and we do so clearly and we do not deviate uh, from the meaning of the text and that we don't, don't use it to apply uh, our own personal prejudices, that we make sure that the word is held forward very clearly uh, so that God by his spirit might use it in your lives. To those of you who hear the word, Uh, there is a correlative responsibility that you make sure you hear the Word of God and not simply what your itching ears want to hear. That criticism comes up in in 2 Timothy. It talks about believers, ostensible believers, who gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. There ought to be a moment in all of this interaction where we are arrested you know, we, we just haven't heard what we want to hear, but we've heard something we don't want to hear. Uh, but hopefully, if it's clear from the Word of God, it gives us room uh, to a- apply ourselves to the mercy of God, to understand that there is real value right now in the shed blood of Christ, that you can come, you can come now and apply for God's grace, for God's mercy, and He will gladly give it to you. So that's basically what the passage is saying. This is the same man who invited people to pray at the beginning of the chapter and taught them very graciously uh, how they should pray, um, who fairly described himself as the Samaritan who had cleansed and bound the wounds of the afflicted. Uh, But here he's going to battle, and I, I think it's fair to say that he is going to battle here on behalf of the poor, not just the economically poor, uh, but the spiritually impoverished. You know, not, not, he's going to battle for those who need to hear the word of God and are being prevented from it by the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the lawyers. If you're poor, economically, of course, but if you're poor spiritually, 
If you're poor emotionally or otherwise, Jesus has already said in this gospel that you are blessed. And here he is going to bat for you. He has your concerns at heart. Uh, If you are rich, and again, not just economically, but if you have resources emotionally, uh, spiritually, if you hold this treasure in a jar of clay, don't we have that expression in the Bible? We hold this treasure in a jar of clay. If you are in possession of a treasure, well, think carefully. You are in possession of the treasure in order to share it. And if you hoard the treasure, spiritually, not even talking about economically now, if you hoard that treasure, Jesus says, watch out, be careful. Real purity is to invest oneself uh, in the care of those who are without. It's to seek those who are trampled by the world and come alongside and identify with them. It's to make sure that the Word of God has preeminence. It's a challenge to all of us. It's a real challenge. But again, don't ever miss that there's an invitation that accompanies the challenge. Will you come? Will you come? All who are thirsty, all who are weary and heavy laden, will you come? Will you stop being satisfied by the things that the world offers? And will you come and satisfy yourself on the Word of God? Will you satisfy yourself on Him and Him alone? That's the point. Uh, let's pray that God would use this uh, to his own glory and to our satisfaction uh, and to the growth of the church and to the readiness of the congregation uh, to receive another pastor. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a rich word that you have, but uh, if we let it, it can make us very uncomfortable. We have more in common with the Pharisees than we can readily observe and and more in common than we would like to admit. But here your word is given uh, for our benefit uh, to teach us, uh, to encourage us, to rebuke us, uh, to lead us uh, into a life that is everlasting. So would you do that by your spirit? And for your glory, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.